This morning's uh, scripture is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 6, and we're reading from verse 12 through to verse 20. And if you've got a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1148. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So a few years ago, I was, uh, it was a beautiful summer's day, and uh, I, wa- I went out with my family, and we had a picnic up on the downs in uh, Sussex, over sea, overlooking the sea. It was sunny, and it was just one of those lovely halcyon days. Children were playing football, and families were picnicking, and there were dogs running around, and, you know, it was, it was, just, it was just great. And then three te- teenage lads turned up with an air rifle. And uh, they started shooting this air rifle in this field on the top of the downs. And, and so, me being me, I wandered over to the boys and said, Guys, we've got lots of families here. What are you doing shooting an air rifle? And uh, being careful to load it again whilst he was speaking to me, he turned to me and said, Who the hell are you to tell me what to do? It's amazing how a loaded air rifle will concentrate the mind at that point. And uh, we had quite a fruitful conversation, which eventually uh, did um, uh, get the desired result of uh, me shooting... Uh, no, of, um, uh, of them going to shoot their air rifle somebody, somewhere else. Who the hell are you to tell me what to do? That, that is an a overarching question of authority which kind of has lingers over our, our world right now. Over the last uh, uh, few weeks, actually it's been 10 weeks, we've been asking the question, is there a better story to the one we are living about human identity and sexuality? And this morning I want to bring that series to an end, both by saying something new and reviewing where we've got to so far, 
But underneath it is that question of authority. In 2005, this man was found wandering on the island of Shepi. He was suffering from amnesia and couldn't tell anyone who he was. The only thing that doctors knew was that he was an excellent piano player because whilst he was in hospital, there was a piano in the common room and one day he played it from memory for four hours. For five months, the authorities tried to find out who he was using this photo all around Europe and enlisting the help of the press, the Daily Mail in classic Daily Mail style, calling him Piano Man. Eventually, it was discovered that his name was Andreas, that he was 21 and, and from Bavaria and was eventually returned home with no clear idea how he got to be wandering around the Isle of Sheppey. The search could be undertaken 15 years later, not for one person, but actually for all of us. Who on earth are we? You see, the great irony of our age is that we have biometric passports. We have uh, uh, the technical inf information now, the, the technology for a contest contactless smart card, including a microchip processor. And, and we can uh, tell from people's facial recognition, facial recognition software. We can use fingerprint recognition. We can even use iris recognition and, uh, to tell someone who they are. The great irony of the situation is that whilst it's becoming easier for the, the authorities to identify us, it's becoming more confusing for us to identify ourselves. Who are we? What does it mean to be a person? And these big overarching questions come right down into the everyday experiences of our lives. I know personally two young couples who have got married in the last three years uh, one of them came back, they saved for a couple of years to go on the big honeymoon. They came back from the honeymoon and uh, the wife announced that she was bisexual and uh, she now spends the first three nights of the week with a gay colleague from work and then comes back to her sad and confused husband. The other couple uh, came back from their honeymoon immediately after the wedding and uh, she announced that she now wants to be in a polyamorous relationship. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but this diagram explains polyamorous relationships. A polyamorous relationship is where couples are consenting to have uh, intimate relationships with more than one partner. And that, as you see from the diagram, can take all different shapes and forms. It's exactly what Christian commentators were saying was going to happen in our culture if we changed the definition of marriage between a man and a woman. And it is exactly as people said it was going to be. People have traditionally identified on the basis of color, nationality, gender, and religion, all of which is becoming more and more fluid and open to discussion and interpretation today. And as we saw last week, the way people self-identify is increasingly mystifying, with gender identity and sexual orientation being the key themes in a confusing world. Some people are now going to great lengths to identify as different from the crowd, 
using more and more extreme surgical procedures to do so. And we don't have any moral or legal framework to say or do otherwise because I identify as is simply the final authority of our culture right now. And all the time, this is impacting the children of our nation for whom one of their favorite primary school songs, primary school songs, contains these words. I can sing it to you. I can do anything at all. I'll read it to you. I can climb the highest mountain. I can feel the ocean calling wild and free. I can be anything I want with this hope to drive me onward if I can just believe in me. And whatever it takes, I'll find it somehow. Whatever it needs, I'll show I'm strong. Whatever it takes, I'll make it happen. Finding out where I belong. That is blooming tragic. People are so lost. We have no idea of what it means to be a human. And basically, we've got choices. And everybody here this morning has got basically two choices about what it means to be a human being. Beyond all the myriad definitions of academic um, anthropology, sociology, psychology, and all the philosophy and all the rest of it, we basically have two options. Number one, are you, am I, a blank canvas Have I got the authority and right to paint whatever I like on the canvas of my life because it's my life and I'm its final uh, painter? Or are you a spoilt masterpiece made originally for something beautiful but through our own lives have got damaged and broken and now discovering who we were meant to be and living our life according to the grand design of the master painter. We are either a blank canvas or we are a spoiled masterpiece. And everybody here has to make that choice. So if you're listening in this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that question is as real to you as it is for me. Many of us as Christians, we think that we're spoiled masterpieces, but then can paint our own picture on top. It's crazy. We're either one or the other. We're either a blank canvas or we're a masterpiece. And so all of that is kind of background to the passage that we're going to look at that Rachel has already read for us from 1 Corinthians 6. It's the reason for the last 10 weeks we've been teaching this series called A Better Story? Is there a better story of what it means to be a human being than the one we are currently living And it's been a wide-ranging series where we have looked at a breadth of subjects from how shopping damages our identity to how we vote as an expression of our identity. We've looked at heterosexuality, homosexuality, and transgender. And uh, this morning we finish with 1 Corinthians 6 and the question of authority. I have the right to do anything. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 starts. Because you see, then as now, people in Corinth had some very uh, clear ideas about freedom, which, as irony would have it, both now and then, far from making people free, their definition of freedom actually only further entrapped and enslaved them. The situation in first century Corinth appears to have been that there were men in the church who were really getting into the experience of worship in church and had experienced some kind of superficial conversion to following Jesus. 
But they were a long, long way from having their minds renewed and understanding what it all meant. And so they were enjoying their new faith, but without a genuine knowledge of the truth of Jesus. And so they were still doing some crazy stuff. The Greek way of thinking that they had been conditioned in their culture by basically divided the world into two. The spiritual and the material, the soul and the body. And clearly they thought that now that they were going to church and having spiritual experiences in worship, they could do whatever they liked with their bodies because those bodies didn't matter anymore. They thought it was all about the spiritual life with Jesus. So it seems they were visiting prostitutes and then explaining to concerned church members that it was okay because they were men of the spirit now and what they did with their bodies didn't matter. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 to 20 was written by Paul to put an end once and for all to that way of thinking. And in the process, it provides us with one of the most important passages in the Bible about how we're to understand and think about our bodies, this thing of ours. Please notice, Paul never says that what they were doing was dirty and wrong and immoral. He never says that it's unnatural. Instead, he goes after two profoundly corrupted ideas that they had as foundations to the way they thought, which had led to their behavior in the first place. First, he takes on their understanding of what it means to be free. And secondly, he totally revolutionizes their understanding of the body. And this could not be more relevant. It was written 2,000 years ago in a Greek city called Corinth. But it's basically taking on our world today and saying, do we have the authority to do whatever we want to do? I have the right to do anything was a saying then, and it is still a saying now. So in verse 12, he goes after the, their ideas about freedom. And when he says, uh, I have the right to do anything I want, or as Rachel read in her version, depending on which pub Bible you've got, the NIV tra changed the translation between 1984 and when they retranslated in the 1990s. It's basically, I, I, um, I have the right to do anything or everything is permissible for me. It's a quote from the Corinthian men themselves. It was one of their sayings. And the root of it is literally, I have the authority to do what I want to do. Hence why it's translated as it is. Paul quotes their phrase twice in verse 12 and takes it apart as deeply forlorn both times. In the first, his retort to the saying, I have the right to do anything, is to counter it with, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, he says that much more, the much more important question is not if you can do something but is it beneficial? Beyond being free to choose, it's much more important that what you choose is good and helpful, both to you and others around you. Paul is saying, in effect, your def definition of freedom is incredibly superficial. It's not deep enough. Don't focus on being free to do what you want. Instead, focus on making sure that what you want will make you free. That it will do you and others good. Focus on doing what will keep you free. That's all summarized in those first pithy lines. I have the right to do everything I want. But Paul says, no, not everything is beneficial. 
Then the second quote gets to the heart of the misunderstanding of freedom. You say I can do anything I want, but Paul responds, I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, Paul is completely aware that their definition of freedom will only lead to addiction and slavery. This is the human condition, to freely choose things which then enslave us. Let me give you some examples. All of us do this. All of us freely choose things which then enslave us. Let me give you some examples. So, number one, the anxious, nervous person who to feel free and uninhibited starts to take a drink because that Dutch courage frees them up, they think. But actually, that then becomes an addictive behavior. Or the... the um, highly anxious person who starts to take some medication over the counter but prescription stuff uh, trying to get drugs which then just self-medicate that anxiety they do it with the intention of being free and end up enslaved and addicted that's the human condition let's take another one people at work trying to uh, protect themselves from criticism. They know it's a harsh environment, that there's a performance-related kind of uh, culture there. And so people, what do they do? They work very, very hard to very high and exact, exacting standards because we're trying to protect ourselves from the criticism of others. It's a self-defense mechanism within us. What does it lead to? It leads to another form of addiction. It's called workaholism. Or take the instance of where somebody doesn't feel loved and they feel continuously unworthy. So to feel freer in that, in that situation, they look to people of the opposite sex to bring them the love and intimacy they crave. What happens in the end is that you are a victim of perpetual one-night stands as you strive for these intimate relationships to give you something because you don't feel free without it. The human condition is that we choose ways of being free that actually only enslave us. And if we get our ideas wrong about freedom, we will always end up in a very damaged place. Paul was saying it 2,000 years ago in Corinth. Is that or is that not relevant to today? It's incredibly powerful. I have the right to do anything I want was a complete misunderstanding of freedom. And then, on, uh, then from verse 13 onwards, Paul moves his idea from their fatally flawed understanding of freedom to their equally dangerous ideas about the human body. Basically, in Greek thought, this bit was the machine for carrying around this bit. You know, it was just the kind of material world's uh, kind of carrying mechanism uh, for your brain and your soul. What you did with your body didn't really matter in Greek thought. That is not Christian belief. And Paul goes after the idea with considerable energy and five arguments here. First comes the big principle which crashes through their thinking. In verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
He seems to take another one of their slogans, food for stomach and stomach for the food, which was always, incidentally, much more about than just food. It was about, I can satisfy any appetite I want. And uh, Paul comes up with his own slogan to counter it. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he goes on to explain what he means. In what follows, there are five reasons why we, we do what we, why we do what we do, <laughs> let me try that sentence again. He gives five reasons as to what, <laughs> as to why it is important what we do with our bodies. Eventually, I got there. Just think about this phrase. The Lord, the, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. What does it mean? In verse 14, Paul makes the point that bodies are important, number one, in Christianity because Christianity stands or falls on Jesus being bodily resurrected. If at that first Easter, Jesus' body was not first dead and then made more alive again than any human being has ever been alive because he was resurrected with resurrection power. If that didn't happen, Christianity is a complete con. If it did happen, Christian spirituality and human bodies are forever and inextricably linked. They can never be separated. In fact, he says, one day our bodies will be raised too. So the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body because Christian Christianity is all about bodily resurrection. Then Paul goes on to make a second point as to why the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? This is a remarkable statement. Paul understood the church to be the body of Christ, but here he makes an explicit what he'll repeat later in chapter 12, that individual Christians are literally the limbs of Christ on earth. Notice he doesn't say that you're like members of the body of Christ. He says you are body parts of Christ. His hands, his eyes, his feet, his heart. The Lord is for our bodies because it's part of his body. That's Paul's argument. And then Paul's third line of thinking about why our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord is for our bodies is all about sex. Perhaps the most powerful and personal thing we can do with our bodies. The Corinthian men had totally the wrong idea about sex. And to put Paul's argument at its most simple, he says casual sex is never casual. It's not designed for recreational use. Paul reminds them of what Genesis said. When two people sleep together, they become one flesh. It links you for life. You can't give your body to a prostitute because it already belongs to Christ, is Paul's line of thinking. The fourth reason that our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord for the body is because he lives in our bodies. The Corinthians are united with Christ in spirit, but marvelously, in verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? That's an extraordinary thing for Paul to write. Before Jesus, the Jerusalem temple had been the place where people went to meet with God. But after Jesus, Paul is now saying the individual believer is the place where God dwells by his spirit. In bodies like yours and mine. These Corinthians have been thinking that their experience of the spirit could let them do what they wanted with their bodies. Now it's come a full circle and they have to treat their bodies as sacred. 
because they are temples in which the Holy Spirit of God is in residence. So Paul outlines four reasons why our bodies are for the Lord and the Lord for our bodies. Because bodily resurrection is our Christian hope. Because we are the body parts of Christ on earth. Because sexual encounters are covenantal by nature. That our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And if that wasn't enough, he adds a fifth. Because you are not your own. You're bought at a price. Now honor God with your body. Jesus gave up his body on a cross for us. Now it's time for us to give our bodies back to him. And do with them what he wants us to do. Because we have been bought at a price. We have been bought back. So that's eight rather dense verses uh, written a long time ago in a very different culture. So it's worth just pausing and asking, what does this text say today about a Christian view of what it means to be a person? Well, it means that true freedom is more than being just free to choose. It's about making good choices that set us free. It reminds us that the human condition is to freely choose those things which then enslave us. It reminds us that the body, our bodies, are for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He is pro-us. He is pro-our bodies. It's the, Christianity is the most earthed, grounded religion in the world. The Lord is for the body. Christian spirituality and Christian hope is always going to be embodied. We are body parts of Jesus on earth. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Wow. So... Have a look round. I mean it. Just look round for a moment. This is us. And then hear these words echo through the centuries. You are not your own. Wow. You were bought with a price. Now honor God with your body. We've got two choices. We're a blank canvas or we're a spoiled masterpiece. And Jesus says very, very clearly through Paul, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Now honor God with your bodies. Let me ask you the question this morning. So what does it mean for you and me this morning to honor God with these bodies? What does it mean? What are we putting into our bodies which do not honor and take care of them? What are we putting into them? How many of us are just constantly eating junk food how many of us are drinking too much how many of us are taking some tablets we shouldn't be taking you're not your own you've been bought with a price now honor God with your body what are we depriving our bodies of which mean that they don't flourish. 
Are we eating properly? Are we sleeping properly? Are we resting appropriately? Are we trapped in workaholic lifestyles? Are we exercising? They're discipleship questions. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So honor God with your body. Two choices. Blank canvas, spoiled masterpiece. Which one are you going to choose? What you can't do is say that you're a spoiled masterpiece and then draw your own picture on top of it. That's called vandalism. What are we going to do? Where are we putting our bodies? What are we doing with our bodies? These are core questions of discipleship. Because you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Now honor God with your body. We started this series a long time back. In that question of Psalm 8, which again echoes, even written even before, thousands of years before, but echoes the questions we have today. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. We asked the question, who am I? And we basically said that if you just strip it down to energy and matter, a human being is never uh, explainable. You can't describe a human being by science alone. But there are three building blocks to the universe because God made us in his image. There, are, there is energy, there is matter, and there is persons. God is a person, and we are made in his image. Until we get that, we'll never understand who we are. And God said, let us make mankind in our image. We are made in the image of God. Oh, I don't know why it's done that. And so all human life is sacred. Let us make mankind in our image. And so we were made by love for love. We are made for relationship with God and each other. By design, we are supposed to be lovers and workers. And we were created to rule over everything in this world. So creation is an ongoing process. And we're to be partners and co-workers in that creation. We have a purpose. We've not only been made by love, but we've got a purpose. We're made to be lovers and workers. We've got the dignity of working to make creation good. And it was very good, God said, at the end of the creation of the world. Which means that all things around us were made Good. The spiritual is seen and experienced in the physical. Everything that Paul was saying to those Corinthians was reinforcing the points rooted there in Genesis. And uh, so there are big implications of this. That God's loving purposes extend across everything in all of creation. And Christianity says that the world is important enough to try and fix it. What we do here in our bodies matters. And of course, Jesus, we looked at that week called Flesh, where God became man, which really has enforced the point again that Paul was making to the Corinthians, that you are what you do with your bodies, not what you'll say you do. Because incarnation, when God became man, God spoke and it was so. That's how Christian spirituality gets worked out. 
And then we looked later on in that wonderful passage in Colossians during this series, where John Stott talked about this means that because we are made in God's image, there are profound implications. In Colossians 3, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord Jesus. Those two profound whatevers, which means we are to treat others as if they were Christ. And we are to treat others as if we were Christ. Working out our discipleship in the now, in the body, in the flesh, in the world. Because that is the genius of God's creation. And we live in a world where love is being destroyed by the algorithms of Tinder and all the other dating apps. And in that brokenness, Jesus says to us, we are a spoiled masterpiece who can be restored again by the grace of Jesus. That is who we are. We are not a blank canvas. When we choose to be a blank canvas, we choose freedom, which then enslaves us because we get it wrong. But if we listen to who the master painter says we are, he says, this is who we are. We're God's son, clothed with Christ. This is me, one with God and all other Christians. And the son of God is at work to make us sons of God. Through Jesus, we become God's sons legally. And through the Spirit, we become God's sons experientially. Is that not a better story? (sighs) A few years ago, I was with my father-in-law. And he got a phone call. And uh, they said, Mr. Rowlands, are you in Mumbai? Buying a car? He said, no, I'm in Luton buying a Chinese. <laughs> and they said, yeah, we didn't think so. Somebody's cloned your card. We'll, we'll stop the transaction. Identity theft. It is happening on a global scale. And I'm not t- talking about looking after your bank account. I'm talking about who we are. A blank canvas or sport masterpiece. Last week I told this story, the story of how this painting, the portrait of a, of a lady by Gustav Klimt, was stolen in February 1997. And uh, during this series, the gardeners were clearing ivy from the external wall of the, uh, uh, the um, gallery from where the painting was stolen. And they found this hole in the wall with a metal box on it. And they pulled the box open. And the painting had never left the premises. Incredible. It was only in January, this month, that they actually said, no, this was the original masterpiece that um, we thought was stolen but was always here. You see, what we've been doing in this series, this, this, this story is a metaphor for the whole of this series. Everybody out there thinks that it has been robbed from us forever for what is a human being, that actually we're all on blank canvases. But actually the truth is right under our nose. It's never gone away. We are made in God's image. There has never been a time when the world didn't need to know this better story. So, how do we finish this series? A few years ago now, I was reading around this stuff and I was trying to get my head clear about what it is to be a human being. 
And so I leave you with these words. I um, presumptuously call it my own psalm. <laughs> and uh, it was just a, just a thing that I tried to do to get the balances right between the messages of our world and the overarching truth of uh, the Bible, of what it means to be human. It's called I Am. And I read this for myself, but if it's helpful for you to navigate our way as we choose between a blank canvas and a masterpiece. I am. I am a person. I cannot be explained by energy and matter alone. I cannot be defined solely by scientific observation. My worth cannot be determined by my achievement or lack of it. I just am. My identity is not mine to create as I choose, and neither is it a predetermined genetic hand of cards. Rather, my personhood is a unique gift to discover. I'm a person who, like all other persons, is made in the image of God, so I can only discover who I am as I learn whose I am. I can no more find myself than find the wind in the trees. But I trust that I am known intimately and perfectly by God. And that by growing in my knowledge of him, I will in turn grow in knowledge of myself. I'm not an accident. I'm not an evolving survivor. I've been chosen by God. And I'm profound and profoundly and wonderfully loved by him. I'm not good though. For I am both unintentionally broken and sometimes intentionally sinful. But through Jesus, I am rescued, redeemed, and restored. I am forgiven. The only things I really deserve are death, judgment, and hell. But I have been delivered from death and gifted with life by Jesus. I am, quite literally, saved. The only thing that I truly own is my sin. Everything else is a gift. And I am gifted. I'm not entitled. I have no rights, not to health or wealth or happiness, none whatsoever. But I am privileged, very, very privileged. And with privilege comes responsibilities, both to God and my many neighbors. I am responsible. I'm now a son of God. I'm somehow hidden with Christ in God. I am God's fellow worker, his partner in redeeming his creation. I am called and I have a purpose. So life is not about me, despite every contrary message, both around me and within. I never now live a life for Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. I am his, and he is mine. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I try to no longer think of myself in purely individual terms, but as literally a body part of Christ, an organ without which his body on earth will not work as he intends. I am not only united with Christ, but one with all those who have also been saved by Christ. I am far from perfect. I always find it easier to be my own God than to bow the knee to the one true God. And I have passions that war against my soul. Often the good I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I do. I am a conflicted man. I view myself as an addict to sin. I need Christ to recalibrate my default setting of self-obsession with something bigger, more wholesome, beautiful, and lasting. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
My life's goal is now not to try and fulfill my potential, but rather to try and glorify God by the way I live. And I trust that in doing so, I will fulfill my potential. My time on earth is limited. Like everyone else, I will ultimately die. But I need not fear death, for Christ has defeated it. And as one saved by Christ, I am now on a journey home. The ultimate reality of my existence is this. I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. So Lord, you are in me and I am in you. Now and always. This glorious partnership of love and purpose. The reason I'm alive. The reason I am. Let's pray. So, do you have the authority to do anything you want? Or have you been bought with a price? Are you a blank canvas? Or are you a spoilt masterpiece? In the quiet and the privacy of these moments, I invite you to phrase your own silent prayers. For some of us, this could be the first time we ever nail our colors to the mast and say, yep, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus from now on. This is a big moment. For some of us, we know we've paid lip service to the idea of being a masterpiece but we've been vandalizing the picture and doing what we wanted it's time to come home those definitions of freedom don't work they just enslave you more your own you have been bought with a price now honor God with your body And then during this morning as I was speaking, asking about what are we putting into our bodies? What are we depriving our body bodies of? Where are we putting our bodies? Sense that there were people here today who 
need to promise to God now that they will talk to somebody about that afterwards, whether it's after the service or during this week, that there's things going on that need to change and you can't do it on your own. Let's make that pledge to Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a couple of wonderful songs which are just celebrations of joy and freedom and identity. But those words will ring hollow unless we take 1 Corinthians 6.20 and make it our own. This is your prayer. You say amen at the end with me. Jesus, I declare to you and I confess to myself that I am not a blank canvas. I know I'm a spoiled masterpiece made in your image but damaged by sin Jesus thank you that 2000 years ago you died on a cross you put your body in that place so that you could rescue this body thank you and Lord I I want to say those words from Corinthians and make them my own today. I am not my own. Not any longer. I belong to you. You're the master painter. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross, which bought me back from death. You experienced death so that I could experience life. You became sin so that I could become a son. Jesus, you're astonishing. Thank you. And now, Lord, with my heart and soul and mind and strength and every last ounce of energy until the day I die, may I honor you with this body. For the glory of Christ, I pray.